Uh, good morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5 is where we're going to be uh, continuing in our sermon series uh, on the book of Genesis. <clears throat> we're going to be looking at the, the whole of, of Genesis chapter 5. And uh, what I love about preaching through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, is that I don't get to pick the, uh, the quote-unquote uh, exciting passages of Scripture and, and negating the, uh, the quote-unquote boring passages of Scripture. Uh, no, we, we get all of it, uh, including passages of Scripture like this one that contain a genealogy, because we believe that all of Scripture is... Uh, breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 says. Uh, and so my hope uh, is that as we dive into this genealogy, one of several in the book of Genesis, uh, that we will learn something about God, learn something about ourselves, and learn something about our need for Jesus. And hopefully we'll be able to see that um, even genealogies can be exciting. So if you have your Bibles open, follow along with me uh, as I read Genesis chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth, Seth were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Uh, Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. When Kenan, Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, but he was not, 
where God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his, son, called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. May the Lord bless us the reading of his word. So last week, we came to the end of the first Toledoth. That's the Hebrew word for generation. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, we read... Uh, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Actually, that was supposed to be earth and then the heavens. In the first Holy Doth, we see the beauty and the glory of creation and life and marriage. But then the serpent came into the picture and the light of creation turned to darkness as the first man and first woman rebelled against the king of the universe. And then we saw this this downward spiral as the man and the woman uh, attempted to cover up their sin and and as they were exiled from the Garden of Eden and as their son Cain killed their other son Abel. And we saw how the the descendants of Cain, they developed cities and agriculture and, and music and technology but, but then we also saw the fruit of this culture in the Song of Lamech, which celebrated sin. But even though it looks as if the serpent has won, even though it looks as if all hope is lost, we saw that a child was born. And suddenly there was a glimmer of light, a glimmer of hope in the midst of all this darkness as people began to call upon the name of the Lord, and, and this brings us to the, the second of these ten Toledoth sections in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, we read, this is the book of the generations of Adam. So this is the beginning of the next section in the book of Genesis. And at the beginning of this section, we come to a genealogy that draws our attention to three specific things. We're going to see the faithfulness of God, the sting of death, and the hope of eternal life. And that's going to be our our roadmap for our time together this morning. And so we see that the first thing this genealogy does is it draws our attention to the faithfulness of God. We see that it draws our attention to the faithfulness of God. Look back at verses 1 to 2 says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man 
when they were created. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, one of Helena's uh, former uh, Bible college professors was at a, a church in Athabasca, and we had the privilege of going and hearing him speak uh, and answer uh, different people's questions. Uh, one of the questions I was asked was, how should we approach the, the genealogies in Scripture? Because there's quite a few of them. Should, should we be looking at what each one of the names mean? Uh, or is there uh, significance in the number of years that they lived? Uh, or is there something more that we should be looking for? And this Bible college professor simply said, you know, whenever we come to a genealogy in Scripture, it is mainly a testament to the faithfulness of God in fulfilling his promises. So whenever we come to a genealogy in Scripture, it is mainly a testament to the faithfulness of God in fulfilling his promises. Now, now there may be times when the biblical writers try to convey maybe a, a deeper meaning in the genealogy. For example, last week, uh, we saw how the, the line of Adam through Cain was seven generations, right? A, a complete number of generations, which showed the, the completeness of the depravity within the line of Cain. Here in the line of Adam through Seth, we have 10 generations. That's a, another number of completeness. When we get to the genealogy in Genesis chapter 11, which follows the, the line of uh, Shem through Abram, we're going to see 10 generations. In Ruth chapter 4, we see that the genealogy of David is 10 generations. In Matthew chapter 1, in the, the genealogy of, of Jesus, we see three sets of 14 generations. 14 being a, a multiple of seven, right? So you can, you can kind of see how uh, there may be times when a, a particular genealogy is convey, conveying a deeper meaning. But for the most part, it is simply a testament to the faithfulness of God in fulfilling his <coughs> promises. And we see this in the fact that Genesis 5, verses 1 to 2, is essentially a, an echo of uh, Genesis 1, verses 27 to 28, which says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that, that moves on the earth. <coughs> Excuse me. Genesis 5 is reminding us that in the beginning, God created mankind in his image, and that he created them, male and female, and that he blessed them with procreation. And then we see that this, this pattern has not changed with the descendants of Adam, who are also created in God's image and who are also blessed by God with procreation. And so we see that, that even after the fall of mankind into sin and, and after the curse and after the, the expulsion from Eden and after the murder of Abel and after the deterioration of the line of Cain, the image of God has not been obliterated. It's, it's been marred, but it hasn't been obliterated. And the blessing of God has not been extinguished. And that's very important as we move through not only Genesis, but just the rest of the Bible. The, the image of God has not 
been obliterated and the blessing of God has not been extinguished. In other words, all is not lost. All right, God is faithful to fulfill his promise, specifically the promise of Genesis 3 verse 15, that the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And God is going to fulfill this promise by blessing the descendants of Adam with procreation and multiplication. So so despite the, the sinfulness of mankind, the imago Dei, the image of God, was not all lost and would continue to spread over all the earth. This, this is made explicitly clear in the fact that Adam was made in God's image. And then in verse 3, he has a son in his own image. His name is Seth. So there's a, another image bearer in the world. And then Seth would have a son, and then he would have a son, and then he would have a son. So that eventually, this is the, this is the goal of, of all of these image bearers, so that eventually the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And and there is nothing that will stop God from accomplishing his purpose. God is faithful to fulfill his purposes. And, And this is how we know that this genealogy is a work of God, not a work of man. All right, notice how little we know about each one of these men. Right, so, so last week we looked at the line of Cain and we saw all of their cultural accomplishments, right? They, they did a lot of amazing things and, and then we see the, you know, those in the Bible kind of pick up on those, those amazing things and, and they, they carry them on, but they, be kind of, they kind of began in the line of Cain with all of these accomplishments and we have none of that here in the, the line of Seth. For, for the most part, all we really know about these, these guys is that they fathered children and that they lived really long years. They lived really long lives before they died. And, and honestly, this, this will likely be our legacy as well, m- minus the living really long lives part. There, there will likely be nothing said of, of my cultural accomplishments when I'm dead and gone. It, it might be that the only thing said of me is that I was the, the father of Liam and Benji and Gideon and Rhea and Hadassah, right? And that's, that's all right, because what matters is not that I'm known, but that God is made known. And if I can make God known in and through the lives of my children, then really I, I've done what God created me to do. It's not flashy, but it's faithful. I think that's what we're being called to in this text. Right? Now, now I want to be careful here because I, I know there are people who, who wish to be married who aren't married and, and who wish to have children and, and who are unable to have children. And so how does this, how does this apply to you and to your situation? And I would just say that that we have the opportunity to bear spiritual children. And I, I don't mean that in like a, a weird kind of way, but, but just in that we have the opportunity to tell someone about Jesus 
and to uh, see them come to faith in Jesus and, and to come alongside them in their walk with Jesus so that when we get to the end of our lives, it may be that we have more spiritual children and grandchildren than we do physical children and grandchildren, that we can walk alongside them in their, their spiritual journey through life. And I think that's, that's one of the main points of this genealogy, because we see that, that Genesis 4 ended with the words, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And we see here that, that one of the, the most important things that you and I can do is to have children either physically or spiritually and to invite them to rise up and worship the name of the Lord our God. Right, we see that God will do the work of multiplication. God will give the growth because God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Right, so even though it looks like all might be lost, either in our lives or in the lives of the people we know, it is not all lost because God will fulfill his purposes. So the first thing we see in this genealogy, what it's drawing our attention to is the faithfulness of God, how God will be faithful to fulfill his promise to fill the earth with those who bear his image. So that's the first thing. The second thing that this genealogy draws our attention to is the sting of death. So we saw the, the faithfulness of God. Now we see the sting of death. There, there are two refrains that we see throughout Genesis chapter 5. You may have picked up on, uh, on both of them. The, the first one is, and he had other sons and daughters. Right? That's repeated after each uh, one of these uh, men are introduced. And we've, we've, as we've seen, this emphasizes God's promise of preservation through procreation. But then the second refrain that we see throughout Genesis chapter 5 is, and he died. That's all. Adam lived 930 years and he died. Seth lived 912 years and he died. Enosh lived 905 years and he died. Kenan lived 910 years and he died. Mahalalel lived 895 years and he died. Jared lived 962 years and he died. Methuselah lived 969 years, almost making it to a millennium, if you can believe that, and he died. Lamech lived 777 years and he died. And he died, and he died, and he died. And so it has been since the fall. Right, so this week, I read that there have been 6,381,455 deaths around the world from COVID-19. Right, so whether or not those stats are correct, that's over 6 million deaths. Uh, that's not including uh, the deaths from uh, heart disease or cancer, the, the top two leading causes of, of death. Uh, so, so this genealogy is reminding us that uh, this is not the way it was supposed to be. This is not the way it was supposed to be. In, in the middle of the Garden of Eden was what? 
the tree of life. Right? That was the tree from which the man and the woman were, were free to eat. They, they could have eaten from the tree of life and lived forever in glorious communion with God and with one another. But instead, they ate of the tree of which God commanded them not to eat. And as such, the curse of physical death came into effect. For in the day that you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. Now, what's striking about God's judgment is its restraint and its mercy. Right? So the, the penalty of disobedience was death, but Adam and Eve didn't lie dead at the foot of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, did they? No, they, they were certainly spiritually dead uh, in their trespasses and sins in that moment, but physical death had not yet taken root in their lives. The, yet the penalty would be exacted. Judgment would be dished out. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God declared to the man in Genesis 3, verse 19. And thus, Romans 5, verse 17 says, death reigned through that one man. So although they lived a really long time, death reigned even in the God, the line of the offspring of the woman. And death continues to reign from, in, in every generation from Adam all the way to today. You know, we, we do all we can to blunt the harsh reality of death. We, we, we even try to avoid mentioning the word, but we cannot escape it. Death comes for us all. That's what makes the words of the prophet Isaiah so hopeful. In Isaiah 25, verses 7 to 8, Isaiah prophesies that the Lord will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. You can get a sense of what that is. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away Tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Now can you imagine hearing those words after thousands of years of death? Right? When will this happen? When will the sting of death be removed? When will we finally have relief? Right? That, that's essentially the cry of, of Lamech here later in, in Genesis 5. Not, not the... Lamech of Genesis 4. In Genesis 5, 29, Lamech has a son and he calls his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech is saying, hey, maybe this will be the one who will swallow up death forever and wipe away the tears from our eyes. Maybe, maybe he will be the one who will deliver us from the curse of the fall. Now, God will certainly use Noah to bring relief. But Noah would not be the one promised in Genesis 3, verse 15, who would defeat the serpents. Yet, yet, Noah points us to the one who would provide relief from death, and that's Jesus. 
Right? This should draw our attention to uh, Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 to 18, where Jesus says to the Apostle John, and these are, these are words of comfort, fear not. I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Right? That's Jesus. Right? So Jesus has the keys to death. In other words, Jesus rules over death. Death does not have the last word Jesus does. It's how Jesus can say to Martha in John chapter 11, verses 25 to 26, as her brother Lazarus is dead in the tomb, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus asks her. All right, so, so those of us who have put our hope in Jesus, can stare death in the face knowing that we will not ultimately perish because Jesus has the last word in our lives, not death. Right, so this, this genealogy is getting us to, to look at death and know that we're going to die because of Adam's sin, right? There's a sting of death here. But then it's also giving us a hope, a hope that goes beyond death, a hope that goes beyond this life, a hope that is rooted in Jesus who took this thing out of death so that God's people will no longer be subject to death, but will live forever and ever and ever. And thus we can look at death with hope. It stings, it hurts. But we're not without hope. We're not without hope. And this brings us to the third thing this genealogy does. It draws our attention to the hope of eternal life. The hope of eternal life. So we've seen the, the faithfulness of God, the sting of death, and now the, the hope of eternal life. Look at, look at verses 21 to 24, right in the middle of the, the text. It's like everything is kind of converging into this one, this one moment. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked, so that, that seems kind of low. That's, that's low compared to what we've been seeing. 969, 365, what happened? Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. All right, so after reading, and he died, 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 we're surprised when the pattern is broken. We're surprised when the phrase, and he died, does not occur with Enoch. And we see here that Enoch escaped physical death by being taken away by God, this is extraordinary. But before this happens, but before, before Enoch is taken away by God, it says that Enoch walked with God. And, and that, that is the, the key phrase in this section. 
uh, the, that, that phrase, walk with God, is a phrase in the Old Testament that speaks of the intimacy that the righteous have with God. Uh, one commentator writes that to walk with someone is to have an opportunity for fellowship and companionship where you can concentrate on one another as you walk and as you talk. It's a, it's a phrase that portrays intimacy with God. And Enoch isn't the only one in the Old Testament to experience this, this intimacy with God. In Genesis 6, verse 9, it says that Noah walked with God. In Genesis 32, verse 28, we are told that Jacob wrestled with God. And in verse 30, that he saw God face to face. Uh, in Exodus 33, verse 11, we are told that uh, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And in Isaiah 41, verse 8, it says that Abraham was a friend of God, right? So each of these metaphors is stressing the closeness of a righteous man with his God by grace. Right now, last week I mentioned that there's a, a stark contrast uh, between the, the, the spiritual posture of the people in the line of Cain and the spiritual posture of the people in the line of Seth. And we, we see this clearly when we compare the words of, of uh, Lamech, the seventh from Adam through the line of Cain and Enoch, the seventh from Adam through the line of Seth. Uh, look back at Genesis chapter 4, verses 23 to 24. Uh, Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. As we, we see words of violence and perversity in Lamech. But then if you turn over to the book of Jude, we, we, find, something, we find something a little bit different from Enoch. In, in verses 14 to 15, in this little one-chapter book in the New Testament, the, the book of Jude, uh, Jude records for us the words of Enoch. I don't know when the last time was that you went to Jude. It's a fascinating book of the Bible. Uh, but it says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Right, so we see, this, we see this stark contrast between these two lines in the words of Lamech and the words of Enoch, the one is cursing with his mouth and the other is uttering words of judgment and warning about wickedness and ungodliness. We, we see these, these two distinct spiritual postures in these two verses. Now, now maybe you're, you're looking at this and you're wondering, you know, what did Enoch's walk with God look like? How, how can I experience that kind of intimacy with God? How, how do I have a, a spiritual posture like Enoch and, and not like Lamech. How do I get in on what Enoch got in on? And Hebrews chapter 11, 
In Hebrews chapter 11, we actually get the answer to our question. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, it says that Enoch's walk with God was one of faith. It was one of faith. By faith, the writer of Hebrews says, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So, so we see that Enoch's faith pleased God. And in fact, when you read uh, Genesis 5, verses 22 and, 40, 20, uh, 22 and 24, where it says that Enoch walked with God, another way of reading that is that Enoch pleased God. Because it's, it's essentially the same, the same wording. Uh, we see that what pleased God about Enoch was Enoch's faith. It was Enoch's faith. Uh, and the next verse in, in Hebrews chapter 11 tells us what this, this God-pleasing faith looked like. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Right, so God-pleasing faith is believing that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. In other words, God-pleasing faith is believing that God is the king of the universe who created the heavens and the earth and that his word is true. That God will do what he has said. That he'll give everyone his due. And I believe the writer of Hebrews draws our attention to these two aspects of, of God-pleasing faith because this is exactly what Adam and Eve lacked in the garden. Right? Yes, they, they, were more than like, they more than likely understood that God was the king of the universe. After all, the, his presence, presence of God was continually with them in the garden. But they didn't believe that God rewards those who seek him. They, they didn't believe God's word was true, that God would do what he said he would do. In fact, Satan deceived them into believing the exact opposite, right? That God was a liar and was actually withholding good from them, was actually withholding reward from them. But then along comes Enoch, who walks with God all the days of his life, who believes that God is the king of the universe and that his word is true, and who preaches the righteousness of God to a people steeped in wickedness. This should have been the spiritual posture of Adam and Eve. But they failed. Yet there is hope. Because in grace, he was not, Enoch was not, for God took him. So there's, there's hope in the midst of all this. Now, now, we don't exactly know how this happened. In 2 Kings chapter 2, uh, Elisha is told twice that uh, the Lord was going to take away uh, Elijah, his master, from him. And, and in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, it says that as they went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. So, so maybe, maybe this is what happened to Enoch. We, we don't know. But what we do know is that Enoch was 
taken from this earthly life into life eternal, exempted by God from the curse of death and decay, just as it will be for the followers of Jesus Christ who are alive at his return. And just like Enoch, all those who put their hope in Jesus will not taste death and corruption, but will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52 says. This was the, the hope of every believer in God on this side of Enoch. And then listen to the prophet Daniel in Daniel 12, verses 2 to 3. It says, he prophesied that, that many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The, 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 the hope is that maybe what happened to Enoch will happen to me. Right now, the reality is that not everyone who walks with God will avoid physical death. Right? This has only happened to, to two people in all of human history. But we do know that those who receive Christ by faith will experience the same kind of life that Enoch experienced both in this life and in the life to come. But there's a temptation here for us. There's a temptation here for us to look at Enoch and go, I want to do what he did so that I can get what he got. Right, but the point of this story, the, the point of this genealogy, the point of the Bible is not Enoch, it's Jesus. Jesus is the offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the one who would bring relief from death. Jesus is the one who would accomplish God's saving purposes for the world. Enoch is great and all, but it's Jesus who is the hero. And if our faith is not, if our faith is rooted in anything or anyone other than Jesus, then we do not have the hope of eternal life. Right? Hebrews 11 verse 6 is clear that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith in whom? Faith in Enoch? Faith in myself? Goodness, I hope not. No, faith in Jesus. It wasn't anything that Enoch did that caused him to be taken up with his God forever. It was his faith in the promise of what Jesus would do on his behalf that caused him to be taken up. In other words, Enoch's salvation was entirely a work of God. And the same is true for us today. Enoch was, was still a, a sinful human being who needed his sins paid for by the blood of Jesus. There's, there's nothing inherently great about Enoch. But because he trusted in the one to come who would accomplish this on his behalf, God took him to be with him forever. Enoch is a picture of what's coming for all those who, like Enoch, put their faith in Jesus. Nothing we will ever do will earn us eternal life. 
Eternal life is available to all those who accept it by faith in the promised Son of God who came to this world in the person of Jesus Christ, who lived the perfectly obedient life that we were supposed to live but failed to live, who died the death we deserve to die, and who was raised from the dead in victory over sin and death so that we would live forever with him in glory. Right, when, when you receive this good news of Jesus Christ by faith and begin walking with God, then one day you will be no more, for God will take you to himself. Now, that, now this might happen when Christ comes again in the clouds, or this might happen in death. But either way, for those who trust in Jesus by faith alone, there is nothing, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, verses 38 to 39 says, and this is good news that, that we can sing about. And it's good news that, that is at the heart of our closing hymn this morning. In 1842, George and Jane Matheson had a child and named him George, obviously, and proudly after his father. George was the first of eight children, but the only one of his siblings who was born with poor eyesight. Though his vision was blurry, his dreams for his future never seemed to be unclear. Through his growing up years in Scotland, he flourished in his education at Glasgow Academy and then pursued greater study at Glasgow University. It wasn't long after he finished his studies that his poor eyesight drove him to become more dependent upon others to accomplish just about everything. In light of this ailment, he had a reputation of being joyful with a great spirit about him that was not easily discouraged. Most people who watched him preach and go about his life didn't even know that he was blind there was only a short period where he seemed to struggle with great discouragement over his lack of eyesight, but it didn't seem to stall him for long. One of the great helps to overcoming his loneliness and accomplishing so much were his sisters. His oldest sister uh, stuck by his side for years, helping him around the house and taking the time to write his dictations for him, including his early sermons. He was able to write many articles and books in his lifetime, some with the help of his sister, others with the help of a secretary, and then later in his life with Braille and a typewriter. Perhaps one of the greatest pieces Matheson ever wrote was a simple hymn, which he wrote on the night his sister was wed. His sister, the one who he was so dependent upon and who was very special to him, was starting a new chapter of her life. Her marriage would have filled him with deep emotion and an extra need for dependence upon God. The hymn Matheson wrote on his sister's wedding night was entitled, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. When he later wrote about the hymn's conception, he recounted the following. Something happened to me that night, which was known only to myself and which caused me the most severe mental suffering. The hymn was the fruit of that suffering. 
It was the quickest bit of work I ever did in my life. I had the impression of having it dictated to me by some inward voice rather than working it out myself. I'm quite sure that the whole work was completed in five minutes and equally sure that it never received at my hands any retouching or correction. I have no natural gift of rhythm. All the other verses I have ever written were manufactured articles. This came like a day spring from on high. The severe mental suffering he experienced on that night is, is not told us, although it is suspected that it is due to the loss of his sister to marriage. Yet we can be certain by the outpouring of the hymn that he was comforted greatly by his Savior. His first draft was his only draft, and that alone was shocking to him. It seemed to verify the inspiration of God. Each line of the hymn carries a deep theological thought that propels the listener to a deep contemplation of God's greater love and purposes than this life can offer. The words are as follows. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O light that followest all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray that in thy sunshine's blaze its day may brighter, fairer be. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to flee from thee. I lay in dust, life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. Here is someone who understood the faithfulness of God, the sting of death, and the hope of eternal life. Here was someone who understood how relentlessly God had pursued him throughout this weary and painful life and how there was the hope of eternal life for all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King. Do we understand this? Do we believe this? I hope we do. May the Lord help us to walk with him as we make our way to our final rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ's death and for the reminder of the necessity of our trust in you, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Help each one of us to cling to Christ by faith. And if there is anyone here who does not know what it means to trust in Christ, to rest in him alone for salvation, I pray that their heart would be so moved that they could not leave this place before they have done business with you and have been joined to the godly line which will live forever and ever.
Our hope is in Jesus. Renew our hope day by day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.